Last week, if y'all were with us, uh, we covered uh, really the faithfulness of Moses and Christ. That, that's what we looked at in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It was, uh, it was really uh, how Moses and Christ are similar in that they were faithful to God. But then we also saw how Christ is superior to Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house. But Christ was faithful in a much more significant way as a son over God's house. And so, again, we saw the superiority of Christ to the prophets, the angels, now Moses. Now, what we're going to do for the rest of this section, starting today, is the followers of Moses and their unfaithfulness is going to be front and center. And it's going to be used to encourage the followers of Jesus Christ that the author of Hebrews is writing to, to be faithful. And we're going to see the consequences of unfaithfulness. And so today we're really starting a trajectory through chapters 3 and 4 that Kevin's going to pick up on. And some of these same themes are going to resonate all the way through to the end of chapter 4, essentially. And that's, that's where we're going the next couple weeks. Uh, if you remember this, with Moses, God saved Israel, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember this? The great Exodus story. And he saved them out of slavery so that they could do what? So that they could rest. He, he saved them from their toiling and their brick making. Remember this? so that they could rest in him, so that he could plant them in a resting place. That is the promised land. But Israel's unfaithfulness ultimately kept them from entering God's rest. And that's what we see in Exodus and Numbers, all the way up to the point that the next generation of Israel goes into the promised land. But their unfaithfulness is what kept them from experiencing, from entering God's rest. So in effect, the Israelites, that generation was restless for the rest of their lives. And they all died, that whole generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness, including Moses and Aaron and Miriam. All died, all lived out the rest of their lives restless. And what we discover is that restlessness is the inevitable result of unfaithfulness. Let me say that again. Restlessness is the inevitable result of unfaithfulness or faithlessness. Uh, yesterday, I actually looked up the definition of restlessness to make sure I was using it in the correct way. Uh, and sure enough, dictionary.com came to the rescue and listed two definitions that fit the Exodus generation of Israelites perfectly. Dictionary.com tells us that first, restlessness is, is defined as perpetual movement. And isn't that exactly what happened to the Exodus generation? They were never able to settle in the promised land. They were perpetually wandering around for four decades in the wilderness. And then the second uh, definition that I thought was incredibly pertinent was that restlessness is defined as discontent or dissatisfaction. And what does that discontent or dissatisfaction do? Well, dictionary.com tells us that it drives one to keep looking for solutions alternatives, or new things. 
Can I read you that again? Discontent or dissatisfaction that drives one to keep looking for solutions, alternatives, or new things. You never settle. You're restless. And this discontentment and this dissatisfaction of the Israelites, it's pretty obvious when you go back to read the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. In fact, the entire Old Testament, in a sense, is a, is a history of this restlessness that we see in the people of Israel, the people of God. It's always easy to beat up on the Israelites. And we talked about this in our group a while back. But when you go back and read Exodus Numbers, isn't it so easy to just beat up on those Israelites? Like, oh, I can't believe you guys would be unfaithful to God after seeing all that amazing stuff, the plagues and the, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the most powerful military might in, in the entire world of that day. The, the, all these things that God did, his great and mighty works, his great and mighty salvation, and so we beat up on them. But, but wait a minute. Aren't we experiencing restlessness in our world today? In our homes? In our hearts? One of the example sentences on dictionary.com, it read this. It was for that latter definition. The example sentence on dictionary.com said, We are incomplete beings yearning to be made whole, dogged by a sense of unease and restlessness. And I thought, preach it, brother, right? I don't know where they got that quote from for the example sentence for dictionary.com, but I agree 100%. But I would go further, and I would argue that the author of Hebrews would go further to point out that only God, and specifically only Christ, is able to put to rest that sense of unease and restlessness in our world, in our homes, in our hearts. And sadly, like the, like the Israelites in today's passage, we often find ourselves looking for rest in all the wrong places. It's like that song, looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for rest in all the wrong places. And for whatever reason, we don't believe. When we get down to the nitty-gritty, we really go through periods of, of, of just not trusting, not believing that God can provide us with what we're looking for in the sense of rest. And so we resist Christ when he calls out to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We resist that because we don't believe it. And so we go looking all over the place to these new solutions, to these new things. The main point of today's sermon is very simple. I hope the rest is, is the explanation of it is simple, I hope. But, but the point is this, that there is no rest in resisting God but there is always rest in humble submission to Christ. There is no rest in resistance. There is always rest in humble submission. And I hope you see that as we go along. Today's passage warns us to remain faithful rather than to drift into unfaithfulness so that we can enter God's rest through faith in Christ rather than living lives of perpetual spiritual restlessness in this life. The first lesson that we learn is that an unfaithful heart is spiritually 
resistant. It's resistant in, in the things of God. In verse 12, we see the point of verses 7 through 11. He uses this great quote from Psalm 95 and 7 through 11. We're going to do things a little backwards today. We're going to start with verse 12 because it informs us as to why he's choosing to use this quotation from Psalm 95. So let's start and look at verse 12. The the inspired author to the Hebrews writes, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Falling away from the living God. There's all sorts of things going on in how this section is structured. This is going to tie in with the word of God that is living and active at the end of this section. But really what this is, this falling away from the living God, we're meant to see it in light of what he just wrote in verse 6. It's essentially the opposite of what we looked at last week at the end in verse 6. Whose house we are. You remember this from last week? Christ, the faithful son over God's house. Whose house we are. We are God's house. And then it says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In other words, the author is warning his readers to hold fast so that we won't develop an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In verse 12, the author begins with a pretty staunch warning. Take care, brothers and sisters. That take care is a serious warning to fellow Christians in the church. He calls them brethren, which can include brothers and sisters. He's speaking to primarily these Jewish background believers in a local church somewhere, maybe Rome, maybe Jerusalem. But anyway, he thinks he's talking to Christians. Brethren, brothers and sisters, take care. Um, And this naturally leads us to the question, and guys, we're going to be asking this question all throughout Hebrews, okay? But it naturally leads us to ask whether the author is talking about loss of salvation. Who thought that when we read verse 12? Right? Or verse 6? Or later it'll show up in the passage Kevin's going to work on next week. You ask that. Well, does that mean that you lose your salvation if you don't try hard enough? The short answer is I believe no, but we're going to look at that in a little bit. Or does it mean something else? We'll look at some of the options. But listen, before we get into all that, we need to see this in its context. In order to understand the meaning of verse 12, we have to understand what the author is doing in verses 7 through 11. That makes sense, right? So we need to look at 7 through 11. And these verses... Uh, contain a quote from Psalm 95. It's a royal, it's called by biblical scholars, uh, a royal enthronement psalm. There's a messianic context, a, a context of Messiah, the great king, in this section of the Psalms. And so the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses the latter half of Psalm 95, which later is attributed to King David. And the psalm is written against the, and this is important for you to understand, to see how Scripture is interacting with Scripture. But Psalm 95, written by, let's say, David in around 1000 B.C., maybe pulled together in the final edit of the Psalms, the book of Psalms in the exile, maybe 500 years later. Uh, That psalm of David is looking back at a historical backdrop 
from the, the books of Moses, from the book of Numbers, from the Exodus wonderings, specifically Numbers chapter 14. That's the historical backdrop to Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 begins with this beautiful invitation to worship the Lord. I mean, stunning. Go back and read the first half of Psalm 95. It's this invitation to come and worship the Lord and bow down, kneel before him and worship. And that's huge because then the second half of Psalm 95 ends with a warning against hard-heartedness. What in the world? Come worship the Lord. And then it warns against hard-heartedness, letting your hearts become hard. Why? Those things are related, as we will see. And and this example of hard-heartedness that Psalm 95 plays off of in the the story of Israel, that example is, is this tragic stories, this tragic story of how the events of the Exodus unfold. Go back and read Exodus and Numbers especially to see that narrative play out. And it is tragic. That's the backdrop. And in the example, we see how hard-heartedness leads to a spiritual resistance that ultimately, ultimately, it distrusts God and it disobeys God. And those things are related. That hard-heartedness that we're warned against that we see play out in the life of Israel, it leads to distrusting God and to disobedience to God. And we see that in the very context of our passage today. First comes distrust. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, now we could do uh, an entire sermon on that little inclusion right there. So know that scripture, the ultimate author, even though it comes through fallible human authors, the ultimate author of scripture is the Holy Spirit. This could be attributed to David and the Holy Spirit at the same time. Another sermon for another day. That's huge. I blow past statements like that in scripture. So this is what it says. Just as the Holy Spirit says, quoting Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. And there's a subtle little thing there where the author makes a a little adjustment to the emphasis from the, the, the Old Testament, from the Greek version of the Old Testament, So the 40 years now are are this context in which God's people see his works. What works? Well, works of discipline, right? But at the very same time, works of provision and of blessing, even in the midst of their discipline. And again, that's a whole nother sermon. The problem wasn't that the Israelites failed to hear God's voice. Can I tell you this? And, And this is so applicable to us and to people in our day as well. The problem was not that God was talking too quietly, that they couldn't hear his voice. They heard it loud and clear through Moses. We just talked about the faithfulness of Moses. He was the the apostle sent by God to Pharaoh and ultimately to Israel to to call them out. And and the law was brought through Moses. And, And so it's They heard God's voice loud and clear. That's not the problem. The problem was that they distrusted God. 
They distrust, they doubted his ability to fulfill his promises. And what had he promised when he called Israel out of slavery, out of bondage? What did he promise? He promised to bring them to a resting place. He he promised to bring them to a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they would have peace from their enemies, a land where they could be established in God's rest. But their hearts distrusted God, thinking him incapable of fulfilling that promise. And this is why, go back to the story of Israel, this is why they immediately grumble. None of us grumble, they grumbled a lot, right? 3,500 years ago. Uh, that's not true. They, as soon as they get through the Red Sea, they start grumbling, all right? And, and this is after God turned the waters of the Nile to blood. This is after God split the Red Sea so that they could walk across, across as on dry ground and brought it crashing down on Pharaoh's army. And immediately after their songs of salvation, they're grumbling about not having any water. And the, the problem wasn't silence on the part of God. It was distrust on the part of God's people. And folks, it applies to us as well. In fact, get this. This term for the place of their grumbling, the, the place of their testing God as Meribah, that, that shows up on the back end of the 40-year journey too. In Numbers chapter 20, the place that they're at gets named the same thing because guess what they're doing? Grumbling about the fact that God can't provide them any water and they're going to die of starvation and dehydration in the wilderness. After 40 years of supplying manna from heaven and water gushing out from rocks. And they go back to grumbling about that that God cannot do what he's promised to. He cannot sustain us and ultimately fulfill his promises. They didn't believe that he was capable of providing them with rest in that place. Um, remember when the, the, the spies come back, the 12 spies? Remember what 10 of the spies, well, all of them say, there's, there's what? There's giants in the land. Yes, it's a good land, but there's giants. And what do the people of Israel do? Even though Joshua and Caleb warned them against doing this, what do they do? They immediately distrust God's plan. Are you kidding me? I thought you promised to give us a place of rest. There's giants in the land. They're gonna, we're like grasshoppers. They're going to crush us. What a great plan, God. But no, none of us do that, so I'm just going to move on. Their, their hardness of heart was characterized by a stubborn distrust of God. And, and this sort of distrust never comes alone, all right? Because next comes disobedience. Folks, we see it in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through human history. When we distrust God, how soon after that starts to develop are we disobeying God? Look at how God characterizes their disobedience in verse 10. He says, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. Folks, when we distrust God's ability to save us and to sustain us, ultimately to fulfill his promises to us, where do we look? We look to false gods. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. We all do this. In order to worship these false gods, we give up on God. We give up on Christ. And in order to 
get what we want that God can't provide us seemingly. We worship these false gods and, and necessarily the worship of false gods will lead you to be disobedient to the one true God. Necessarily, you can't have your cake and eat it too in that sense. In breaking the first two commandments that came through Moses, which acknowledge God as the only true living God, we soon very quickly break all the rest. It is no holds barred after those first two go. When we deny the one true living God, everything else flows out of that. To use the words of Psalm 95, we go astray in our hearts and we do not know God's ways because we, we turn from his ways. And again, he's not silent about his ways, but we turn from those ways because we think it's a path to nowhere. And what do we do? We pursue our own paths in life. And our disobedience always has dire consequences. Now, if you've never bowed the knee to Christ, the disobedience is you get what you want. Independence and autonomy from God for eternity. But if you are in Christ, there are still consequences to our sin, to our disobedience. And an unfaithful heart is resistant to God and his ways. It will inevitably distrust and disobey God. In the days leading up to this severe cold weather a couple weeks ago, some of our people were helping our homeless neighbors get checked into hotels. And I remember getting a text on our uh, tray birthday gift text chain. It's beautiful. Uh, I remember getting a text. Uh, it was from Stephen. And he was telling us to pray for this particular homeless man who refused to stay in a hotel. Apparently, he had some significant psychological issues, uh, which, which made him resistant to the idea of staying for free in a warm hotel room. And so he resisted the, the call to this, this place of safety and warmth and provision. And, and you know, I never, I never heard what happened to him, but his story is a good illustration of the spiritual resistance that's highlighted in today's passage. God was calling the Israelites to enter into his rest, but they had spiritual problems, significant spiritual problems, the problem of sin, which led to their stubborn resistance to God's call. Their hearts distrusted and disobeyed God. They had what the, 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 the scriptures call a hard heart. These evil, unbelieving hearts that turned away from the living God and his incredible offer of abundant life and rest. So let me ask you a question this morning. Would you say that you are good at resting? No. No, I, I complain about how bad I am at resting all the time and how restless I feel all the time. We're terrible at this. This is why these passages are so important for us and so applicable to us, because we don't know how to rest. In fact, I'll be frank with you. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure I really know what rest is in, in terms of biblical categories. I've got this fuzzy, weird, culturally informed idea of rest, but I don't think it matches up with Scripture. I, I'm much more likely to, to say like that definitional sentence, example sentence in dictionary.com, that I feel constantly dogged by a sense of unease and restlessness. Amen? 
We're not an amen church, but you can be for that, okay? But I do know what restlessness feels like. I may not exactly understand rest at this point in my spiritual journey, but I'm learning and I'm growing. But I'll tell you what, I can pinpoint restlessness. I know what that feels like. Going back to dictionary.com, it's discontent or dissatisfaction that drives me to keep looking for solutions, alternatives, or new things. Spiritually speaking, it's being discontent or dissatisfied with Christ. We're just not happy with what he's provided us with. And so we look to everything else. And that drives us to to seek these other solutions, these these different religious practices and spiritualities and and things to pour our lives into and and goals and visions for our life and, and paths that we set out and trailblaze for ourselves, okay? It drives us to look for alternatives, and, and that can be a very subtle process. And the world is not helping us in that way, because the world's already given up on Christ. They will be more than happy, our world will, and Satan will, to come alongside you and go, let me help you out with that. Get you off in the weeds. So how might you be discontent or dissatisfied with Christ this morning? You've got, you got to pray that the Holy Spirit will light up your heart light up your life, to turn his his holy spotlight onto your heart. And we're going to see that at the end of this section. The living, the word of God is living and active. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. You got to pray that the living word of God will light up your life and expose those areas of discontentment and dissatisfaction where Jesus just can't give you what you really want. At least we think not. Do his commands seem too intrusive? You see these commands of Christ, it's like, oh, that couldn't be right. I think they got that wrong back there in the first century. That's way too intrusive on how I want to live my life. Is it too uncomfortable? What? Jesus would really want me to sacrifice that? If he's calling you to do it, yes. Or maybe we think it's too costly. It just costs too much to follow Jesus. Can I just kind of call myself a Christian and just not pay that that incredible cost. No, the cost that we pay as Christians is our lives. It's our everything. It's loving the Lord with all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, all our strength, so that we can love one another as, as God calls us to, as Christ exemplifies. We got to put it all on the sacrificial table, as Paul says, and become living sacrifices. But does that seem too costly? Does it seem like obedience to Christ could never lead to the desired outcomes for our life, to the fulfillment and the satisfaction that we crave in this life? Whether it's vocational or financial or medical or relational or whatever it is, does it just seem that that our obedience to him, what if I want to get married and that's not his plan? What if I don't want to be married and that's not his plan? What if I what if I want to do this for a living and, and it just doesn't pay much? But he, like, there's just a million examples that we could go down and look at. You're going to have to do that. To, to paraphrase today's passage, watch out, brothers and sisters. Take care, brothers and sisters. Watch out that hard-heartedness, the deceitfulness of sin doesn't harden your heart so that you don't end up turning away from Christ who is the only one who can provide us with an abundance of life and rest. There's not another source for life and rest. 
but Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. So far, Psalm 95 has taught us that an unfaithful heart is a spiritually resistant heart. But in the final verse of Psalm 95, we learn a second lesson, and it's that an unfaithful heart is spiritually restless. So let's look at what the Lord says in verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They cannot have their cake and eat it too. They cannot distrust and disobey me and yet enter my rest. Adam and Eve cannot stay in Eden after they've rejected me as their God and sought to become gods of their own. I must separate them from me, the source of life and rest. God is holy and he cannot abide our sin. Later in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is going to use Genesis chapter 2 as a backdrop for understanding rest in this section. It's, it's beautiful. Basically, folks, listen, let me... This, this blows my mind because it, it's, it's all connected in Scripture. But Eden, what was Eden? What was the garden? Very basic. What was the garden? It was a place of rest that God placed mankind into for what purpose to rest now to do what he called them to do to rule and to reign and to be his representatives because he made them in his image but it's it's a resting place eden was it was a place for them to worship god and enjoy his blessings guys when you see a resting place in the old testament and in the new testament there's two characteristics that i want to emphasize It is a place in the presence of God to worship the Lord our God and to enjoy his incredible and gracious blessings. That's what Eden was. And the only requirement to enter into and remain in that rest is what? It's to to believe God, to take him at his word, which, which is demonstrated by faithful obedience. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they had to leave that place of rest. And things did not, there were consequences, to put it lightly. In the Exodus, God sent Moses to free his people from drudgery and slavery and exhaustion in Egypt and to reestablish what? A place of rest for his people in the promised land. The promised land was supposed to be another Eden. That's why the tabernacle and later the temple had these images of creation. It was a a reestablishment of the garden with God's presence at the very center where God's people could be in his presence and worship him and enjoy his incredibly gracious blessings. But as our passage makes clear, unbelief kept the Israelites from entering God's rest. In fact, not Not even Moses was able to enter the rest. Do you remember this? Not even Moses, the great father of Israel, was able to enter into the rest because of unbelief. And Aaron, the high priest, and Miriam, their sister, and all that generation. Instead, they they wandered around for the rest of their lives in the wilderness, which was a place of restlessness. Was God still with them? You better believe it. 
Was he still blessing them to the extent that their sandals and their clothes didn't wear out? Was he still bringing miraculous bread? Was he still bringing miraculous sources of, of water? Was he still sustaining them so he could bring that next generation to Israel? Ryder, yes. That's the right answer. But there were consequences. They wandered in this place of restlessness. So the author of Hebrews makes it clear that the Israelites, even including Moses and Aaron in that, were unable to enter God's rest because of their hard-heartedness towards God. And in the very next verses, the author warns fellow Christians against having evil, unbelieving hearts that fall away from the living God. So back to our question from earlier, is this referring to loss of salvation as some interpret this? Me personally, we at Wayside do not believe that once you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that you've bowed the knee to Christ, that you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that you've been grafted into the body of Christ as a member of the body of Christ, that you've been baptized into the body of Christ, we do not believe that you can lose that. So we don't believe that you gain that salvation by your good works, and we don't believe you lose that salvation by your mistakes and, and sin. But are there consequences? Is there judgment in the sense of discipline? You better believe it. Because if there wasn't, we wouldn't be beloved children. And we'll see that later in Hebrews, okay? There are basically three ways to interpret falling away here. Number one, true believers who lose their salvation. I don't hold to that. True believers. Number two, true believers who lose in some sense. They they face uh, temporal, that, that is present in this life. They face discipline or judgments. And in the future, they lose future rewards. The, uh, Paul talks about this in First and Second Corinthians, that, that, that beam of seat of Christ where our lives are put to the flame and whatever's worthless burns away and whatever's valuable we take on into his kingdom. That we can waste our lives in that sense and do worthless things that burn up at the judgment seat of Christ. Not that we lose our salvation, but we lose real rewards. That's a, that's a very clear doctrine. We probably need to spend more time looking at it. There are consequences to how we live our lives, both now and in the future kingdom. Number three, professing believers who had never been saved in the first place. In other words, if he's talking about this and it sounds like loss of salvation, he's probably talking to people that say they're Christians but never actually trusted in Jesus. Uh, and based on the larger context of the New Testament, I can't accept the first one that falling away means losing your salvation, but I'm torn. I'll be honest with you. I'm torn between options two and three. There's really good lines of argument on both sides of that. But... Based on my understanding of Hebrews as a sermonic letter, that it's like a sermon that this, this preacher, this pastor is preaching to this, this church, that it's written with this pastoral concern for the actual members of a real church that are on all different parts of, of a spiritual spectrum, probably. As a pastor, I, I never can assume when I'm speaking to a group of Christians that every single person in the audience has truly bowed the knee to Christ. Why would I make that assumption? I don't know your heart. I lie to people really well. I lie to myself even better. So I can't assume that talking to a group of more than one, me, all right? But if you tell me you're a Christian, I'm going to speak to you as a brother or sister in Christ. Okay? 
So whether some are true believers or, or just merely professors, I think either way, if they turn away from Christ, they will not be able to take hold of the rest he offers. Guys, if you've never trusted in Jesus, you've, you're already turned away, okay? And if you're a believer, you can turn away in different ways. We all know that because we do it. And there are consequences, and that's my point. An unfaithful heart is spiritually restless. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament, one of the passages that was heavy on my heart when we came down here to start Wayside Community Church is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30. We wanted, I wanted, the people that jumped on board with us wanted a, a church, a people of God that, that rested well. And I go back to this time and time again. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And do you know what I never noticed about this verse until this week? It just never occurred to me. That that quote in, in verse 29, you will find rest for your souls, that's actually quoting the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah from hundreds of years earlier. In Jeremiah chapter 6, 16, the Lord offers rest to Israel, but Israel refuses and eventually ends up exiled from the promised land in Babylon. This is what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. These are God's ways. Where the good way is, that's God's way. That's the good way. And walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. And here's the sad part. But they said, we will not walk in it. And from then on out in that section of Jeremiah, it's, it's judgment, it's consequences. God doesn't want his people to live restless lives. He's not this sadistic God who sits up there twisting his mustache, trying to find out ways to make our lives miserable and restless. That's not what he wants for us. He wants us to find rest. He, he wants us to experience the fullness of rest. What John chapter 10 calls not just life, but life more abundantly. That's what God wants for us. And he has made a way for us to experience his rest. And Jesus Christ is that way. Walking in Christ. But unless we take his yoke and are willing to learn from him in his gentleness and humility of heart, then we will remain spiritually restless. Let's circle back to where we started. Are you feeling restless this morning? Are you feeling all, all wound up? Are you feeling perpetual movement? Are you feeling this discontentment or dissatisfaction? Are you feeling restless this morning? The only way to reestablish rest, folks, is through repentance. And I don't say that as a, a hellfire and brimstone, you know, up here pounding the pulpit. I say that because I love you. And because my heart is ultimately a pastoral heart. Guys, without repentance, without turning away from that distrust and that disobedience, we cannot reestablish that 
fellowship. It doesn't mean that we lose our salvation if we trust in Christ, but sin and disobedience, it, it breaks our fellowship with God. We turn away from him, the source of rest and life and goodness. And the only way back is turning around through repentance, confessing our sin, turning from it, turning towards Christ in his way. God's way always brings us back to restored fellowship. It brings us back to the constant experience of his presence in our daily lives. Guys, we don't have to go, we don't have to, go to any geographical location to enter into God's rest. It's right here. We are God's house. We are in the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly tabernacle, seated, not busily running around like the priests in the actual material tabernacle, but we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And if we could just believe that, that is where we will find rest in this life. It brings us back, this this act of repentance, to a heart of worship that enjoys all of God's gracious gifts and blessings. The world is a restless place. As we experience rest in Christ, folks, we're going to look different. We're going to look different. If you're rested in the kind of rest that Scripture's talking about, you're going to look different. And the world is going to take note, and all those restless, weary people are going to flock to you like moths to a flame and try to figure out what is it that's working. And we get to tell them that it is Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's it's a testimony. And God will give us opportunities to lead others out of the restlessness of this world into God's rest through faith in Jesus. So I'd like to close with a quote from a wonderful book. It's called The Confessions of St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you pronounce that. Um, St. Augustine, The Confessions. This is what he writes. He's talking to God. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And get what he says here. You know, God, we, weren't, we didn't create ourselves. God, God created us for himself, for a relationship with him. And this is what Augustine says so insightfully. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Think about that. Let that lap over the shores of your heart. That, that, re, that he created Adam and Eve to rest in him. He saved Israel from Egypt to rest in him. He spoke through Psalm 95 so that a later generation of Israelites would rest in him. He spoke through Hebrews so that some Jewish Christians in the first century would rest in him and his spirit still speaks today through the living word of scripture so that each one of us would rest in him too. But we must understand that rest is only found as we abide in Christ through faithful obedience. Christ has entered into God's rest. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father And through faith, we can find rest with him there. Let's pray.